my friends, and welcome to this special presentation of Cowboy State Politics. From very high above all other puerile and insipid forms of Wyoming mainstream media, this is Cowboy State Politics. I, of course, am your illustrious host, David Iverson, firmly ensconced behind the silver Cowboy State Politics microphone and broadcasting to you from the base of the Bighorns in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming. Good morning, my friends, and welcome to the program. It's been a while since we've had a serious conversation about firearms and our right to possess and carry them. Nearly every single time that I, or anyone else, turns on the mainstream news, whether it be CNN or MSNBC or, in some cases, even Fox, there's some new pundit that says that we have to ban assault weapons. Though they're not able to give us a definition as to what an assault weapon is, and many, many times the people that are saying these ridiculous things have no idea what any type of weapon is, nor have they probably ever held one, much less fired one. Recently, there's been a rash of highly publicized shootings. Some of them have happened in schools. There was one in a bank, and I'm sure the next time I turn it on, there'll be somebody else that's shooting up a big group of people. Most of these so-called experts attempt to claim that it is the gun that is responsible for all of these shootings. That somehow, if we remove access to a certain class of weapon, that's going to stop people from hurting one another. That's ridiculous. If you need any evidence of that, look at the history of when Great Britain started banning certain kinds of firearms. It started with automatic weapons, and then semi-automatic weapons, and then rifles, and then shotguns, and pretty much now all guns are banned. Weird thing is, violence continued to escalate, and now there's an increase in deaths by knife. Last I heard, they were considering a ban on knives of a certain size. Pretty soon, you won't be able to possess a steak knife without having to have a concealed weapons permit, if they'll ever issue you one for that. But all of us reasonable people know that it is not the weapon that causes all of these shootings. You could ban all types of weapons, knives, guns, etc., and eventually people will still be hurting each other with baseball bats and rocks. We don't have a problem with firearms. We have a problem with people. Here's what our own Congresswoman Harriet Hegeman had to say about the matter in a hearing that was held in New York City last week. There is a sickness pervading our communities that is destroying who and what we are. And it's not just about guns. I watched you, Ms. Fisher, as you secretly smiled at some of the, uh, the, the Congress members on the other side as people on our side talked about the, the gun issue. Uh, I, I, I understand you believe that it is an inanimate object that somehow can, can create the, or cause the, 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 the mass shootings, that it's not the individual. One of the things that has struck me today is that as we talk about these mass shootings, nobody has talked about the drugs that these people were on. Nobody has talked about the psychology of this. We just had a woman in uh, shoot and kill three young children and three teachers, and yet no one has talked about what kind of drugs she may have been taking, what kind of psychosis she was suffering from. Clearly she was suffering from a psychosis. She claimed that she was a boy when she was a girl. We have to be looking at those kinds of things. It's not the guns. It's what we're teaching in school. It's the rot in our culture. It is the fact that we are losing our society because we're unwilling to recognize that there is evil, and when there's evil, we need to address it. In Wyoming, it's pretty hard to determine how many guns actually exist in the state. 
But a fair estimate is that firearms outnumber the population at least 10 to 1. And yet, we have one of the lowest incidences of firearm-related crime in the entire United States. On any given day, it's a pretty good guess that at least one out of every two people you run into on the street is packing a firearm. And certainly, just about every home has at least one of them that's pretty handy. It really is a pretty difficult environment to prosper as a criminal here. All of that, however, is irrelevant when we're talking about the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is clear. It's not difficult to understand at all. You have a right to keep and own and bear a firearm, period. There is only one way that you can interpret the phrase, shall not be infringed. As you'll hear during the interview that I'm about to play for you, that phrase, as clear and concise as it may be, is seen only as an impediment to those people on the left. The funny thing is, they don't see their ignorance of firearms as an impediment to ban them. The reason for that is it hasn't ever really been an issue before. Take a listen to this. This is a soundbite of Senator John Kennedy attempting to get Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas to explain what an assault weapon is. You testified in judiciary that you support an assault weapon ban, and we didn't have much time to talk about that. Um, tell me your definition once more of an assault weapon. Um, uh, Senator, we did indeed um, have a brief exchange on, on that very important, uh, very important subject. I am not an expert right. with respect to the definition but, of the assault bans, and so I defer. You to are the Secretary of Homeland Security. I, I, as as I, um, uh, I was about to say, I defer to the experts. Uh, I defer to, uh, for example, the definition of a, uh, an assault a weapon that was codified in the prior iteration of the legislation that was passed and uh, that um, uh, was in operation when I served as an, an assistant United States attorney and the United States attorney in the Central District of California. So you would support the prior definition under... Uh, Senator, I, I, I must defer to the experts with respect to the definition uh, but I will tell you, for example, military-style weapons are of tremendous concern. We are seeing a, um, too much devastation. How do you define? But I mean, you 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 personally think we should ban assault weapons, and I I know you to be an intelligent man and a thinking person, so I'm, I know you've thought about it. What is it about a military? What do you mean by military-style weapon, um, uh, Senator? Um, I really must must say that you are probing a very very important area, definitionally, definitionally, uh, in which I do not have the requisite uh, expertise. I will say this. I will say this. When we see, when we see the tragedy in Nashville, and it is not the first such tragedy that we see. When I engage with my international counterparts, and they ask me almost invariably first, what is going on with all the mass killings in the United States, and why are these assault weapons yes, uh, disseminated so broadly? I say that we need legislation to well, ban let me Let me follow up on that. So you support an assault weapon ban, but you don't have a definition. Is that right? Uh, Senator, uh, I, I think that um, you understand where I stand. No, I don't. 
unknown. You made a very bold statement, very uh, firmly saying we should ban all assault weapons. And all I'm asking is what in your mind is an assault weapon? I mean, you say it's military style. Does that mean it looks like a military weapon? Uh, uh, Senator, I, I believe I've addressed uh, your question. I mean, what, what if it's, if a, may, what if it's I, a single I shot twenty-two that looks like a military weapon? Would you ban that because it's scary looking to you? Senator, I think I've addressed um, your question to the best of my abilities. But, but you haven't. I mean, I'm trying to understand your secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. And as is your right, as an American, you believe we should ban assault weapons. But it bothers me you can't tell me what you would ban. Senator, I would be very pleased to speak with experts. And, um... and it goes on for another two or three more minutes. Now, there's only two possibilities here. Either A, Mayorkas really has no idea what firearms are, or what he's calling an assault weapon. Or B, he knows very well that there is no definition for an assault weapon, and so he's not going to define it on the record. And that way, when whatever ban comes out of the United States Congress, they can just lump everything into an assault weapons ban, quote unquote. The truth is, and every gun owner knows this, that any type of weapon can be used to assault another person. It's a nebulous term that doesn't really mean anything. But facts don't really matter to these people. This next soundbite is the director of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. He's being questioned by Representative Elsie. Get a load of this. Uh, as a gun owner uh, of many different types and a 20-year military veteran, I have some expertise in weaponry uh, and self-defense weapons. What could you, in 15 seconds, would you define an assault weapon for me? So, so if you go after that 15 seconds, I'll just interrupt you. Yeah, so. So, so I'll go shorter than that because I, I honestly, I do think that's a, if Congress wishes to take that up, I think Congress would have to do the work. But we would be there to provide technical assistance. I, unlike you, I'm not a firearms expert to the same extent as you may be, but we have people at ATF who can talk about uh, uh, velocity of firearms, what damage different kinds of firearms cause, so that whatever determination you, you chose to make would be an informed one. That's the director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Same thing as with Mayorkas, although I think the ATF director is actually being more honest. He probably doesn't know anything about firearms. But the reason why they won't give anyone a definition of what they want to ban is they're hoping to lump all firearms into their ban. If there is no definition as to what an assault weapon is, then all weapons can be assault weapons. You see their reasoning here? One of the foremost experts on the Second Amendment and our guest for today's broadcast is Professor George McSari. Currently, he's a professor of law at the University of Wyoming. Now, a few years ago, he was participating in a panel discussion that was held at Duke University. The topic of discussion was the Second Amendment and tyranny protection. During the interview, you're going to hear me refer to this soundbite. It precisely speaks to the motivation behind all gun control. Here it is. One is an absolute faith that, that our government will protect us, even from itself. And, and, and by that, I mean that all the internal nonviolent mechanisms that are built into our, our Constitution and our government, which are... <coughs> absolutely very good ones, will protect us. 
Um, and two, that an armed population couldn't possibly resist um, an armed government. And I think both of those notions are historically defective. Um, uh, if, if, it's, if it's absolutely true that an armed population could never resist a, a, a vastly more, a vastly better armed government, we, we shouldn't be an independent nation, we should be British subjects. Vietnam would have turned out differently, Afghanistan, all of these places where our military had so much trouble. Um, and I think historically, you know, the, the, as Dave said and the founders saw that, uh, you know, governments turn on their people. Historically, all governments turn on their people. That's the underlying motivation behind the ATF director and Secretary Mayorkas and every other single person that advocates for gun control. It is much easier to control a populace if they're unarmed. After the break, I'm going to bring you my interview with Professor George McSari of the University of Wyoming, one of the foremost experts on the Second Amendment. But first, an absolutely obscene profit timeout that hopefully will allow me to buy more guns. This special presentation of Cowboy State Politics is appropriately brought to you by Gunrunner Auctions. Over in Cody, Gunrunner Auctions is one of the nation's leading online auction houses, and right now they're celebrating their 24th year. Essentially, they allow you to own some of the finest firearms that were ever produced. They specialize in estate auctions, so what they do is Scott Weber, the owner, first travels to the estate and appraises the firearms for the heirs, and then he takes them to his Cody auction facility, where he and his team research them. Sometimes they get factory letters from the Cody Museum to tell you about each firearm's history. Scott and his team have sold the personal collections of Elvis Presley, Steve McQueen, Alex McCord, Herb Parsons, and many, many more. So if you're interested in buying a new firearm, maybe you don't know exactly what you're looking for, you should really go to Gunrunner Auctions. They have a wide selection of rare and hard-to-find guns, one of which is lot number 157. It's a Smith & Wesson first model Schofield 45 Smith & Wesson. It was manufactured in 1875 and appears to be a civilian model as it has no military markings. It's in very good condition with a 7-inch barrel and an excellent bore. It's got the correct grooved top rib. The bluing on the gun is in excellent shape. It has the correctly shaped cylinder latch for the first model and correct Schofield markings on the right side ejector housing. Its smooth walnut grips are in very good condition with a few light marks. There are matching numbers on the grips and the frame. Now the cylinder is not matching to the firearm, but it is correct to the 1875 Schofield production models. It comes in a beautiful presentation case with a full box of 45 Smith & Wesson. This is a beautiful antique firearm and it would make an amazing addition to any collection. It's lot number 157 and it can be yours at thegunrunner.com. Morton Buildings is one of the leading manufacturers of metal buildings in the entire country. And they have an office right here in the great state of Wyoming. It doesn't really matter what type of building you've been thinking about, whether it's a barn or a roping arena or maybe a giant warehouse for your business. 
All you need to do is call Nick and Jesse at 307-674-2532, or you could go look at their website at mortonbuildings.com, and they'll handle all the details. Just tell them what you have in mind, and they'll build you the building that you've been thinking about. Again, their phone number is 307-674-2532, or on the web at mortonbuildings.com. And now, my exclusive interview with Professor George McSari of the University of Wyoming. The only thing that we really hear from the mainstream media is that it is always the firearms fault. That if we had fewer guns, then we wouldn't have these mass shootings. That if we restricted the type and capacity of firearms, well, then of course we would have fewer shootings. But none of them really mention that the Second Amendment doesn't have anything to do with safety. Its purpose is for you to protect yourself and for us to protect ourselves from a tyrannical government. In an attempt to cut through all of the political noise surrounding firearms, I thought we should talk to an expert on the Second Amendment. So I drove down to Laramie to meet with Professor George McSari of the University of Wyoming. Here's our discussion. My guest for this afternoon is Professor George McSari from the University of Wyoming. He's an expert on the Second Amendment. I thought I'd invite him on the program to discuss not just all the recent school shootings, but more as to what the Second Amendment really means. So first, uh, Professor, welcome to, the, to my program, Cowboy State Politics. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So the first thing I always do um, when I'm interviewing somebody new is just have you talk about yourself um, just for a minute or two and just tell us who you are. Okay. So I'm a, a professor of law here at the University of Wyoming, College of Law. I've been teaching for about about 15 years uh, at this point. No, a little less than that, about, about 13 years at this point. Uh, I've been writing uh, on gun rights and the Second Amendment for longer than that. My first publication came out in law school. And I do research and writing in the area. And actually, next semester, I'll be teaching a class on it as well, which I haven't done in a few years, but I'm looking forward to doing again. Well, I have to tell you a quick story before we get started. Um, the way I became aware of your work is I was doing a, um, a, a big episode on gun control and all of the lies surrounding it. And I, I came upon this video of a panel at Duke University. And there was this guy that was talking about how dictators always try to disarm their people. In fact, all governments try to disarm their people. And so I used a lot of uh, sound bites from that, that panel discussion. And then later... I was researching somebody else, something else about early laws in Wyoming preventing the carrying of firearms. And just so happened that you wrote it, and I looked at a footnote, footnote and it said, George McSorry is a professor at the University of Wyoming. And I was like, oh, well, I should go talk to him. Uh, the first question I have for you, and this, this seems kind of like, a, like something everybody should know, but what's the real purpose of the Second Amendment? Hmm. So nowadays we tend to break the, the Second Amendment into two of its facets. And one is personal self-defense and the other is tyranny control. Um, what, what these two facets have in common is they're, they're both intended to allow an armed population, um, an, a population of armed individuals to protect themselves from attack, whether that attack come from the government and the founders were particularly afraid of attack by the federal government. Um, 
uh, that was at the first founding. At the second founding, at, in, during Reconstruction, when the 14th Amendment was passed, the fear was different. It was about attack uh, from state governments. And interestingly, James Madison predicted that. He said, we have more to fear from state governments than federal governments. Um, and nowadays, and, and at, the, at, the, the, at the second founding when the 14th Amendment was adopted, there was also this great concern with personal self-defense. Um, uh, and so we tend to think of it in these two categories, but I should say that the founders viewed the two as very much coincident. Um, you can look, for example, at sermons from the founding era, and, they, and the, the, the preachers treated uh, self-defense from tyrants and self-defense from other individuals as the same thing. They saw very little distinction between the two. Okay. Um, now, one of the arguments we hear against the Second Amendment, and it, frankly, I think it's probably pretty silly, uh, but they say, well, you know, the Second Amendment is only for hunting. This is one that, that our president repeats over and over. Why isn't that true? Um, fundamentally, hunting is not about self-defense. Um, now, actually, I'll say that the hunting, I believe there's a, a very strong argument that, that it is encompassed by the Second Amendment. If you look at many of the statements of at the founding era, um, they considered hunting to be part of it. Um, and uh, I did a talk here actually in November as part of a conservation law seminar that, that we put on um, about the constitutional right to hunt. So I think it's there. Um, but that's not the only facet. And that's neither is it the primary facet of the Second Amendment. Fundamentally, the Second Amendment is about allowing an armed population to defend itself from government and from other individuals. Okay, so let's talk about that just, just for a minute. Because I think that this the Second Amendment is sort of obtuse in that there are two parts to it, a well-regulated militia and then the, second, the secondary clause. Two questions. First, what does the, the phrase a well-regulated militia mean in the Second Amendment? And two, how do the two clauses work together? So a well-regulated militia refers essentially to the training and the discipline that the militia receives. So the founders recognized, uh, because they knew from history that um, uh, citizens often preferred to pursue their own endeavors than perform military service or militia service. Um, and so they knew that, that some minimum level of training and uh, discipline uh, for the militia was important so that it, can, can, so that it could continue to be effective. Um, but that regulation, that discipline, um, would be performed by the state or the federal government. Uh, so well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the free state tells us that a militia should be well-regulated and that we need that for a polity to be secure from various things. Tyranny in particular was what the, the big discussion was about at the time. And then the second part, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, is the mechanism that ensures that the militia can continue to exist. Um, because uh, there was a great fear at the time that the federal government in particular would disarm the militias. And uh, every time federal versus state power over the militias got into the courts, the federal government wins. Right? So uh, essentially, the federal government has plenary or, or plenary enough power over the militia um, that if it wanted to disarm it or not use it or send it home or I don't know what, it can. But 
it cannot disarm individuals, the individuals who comprise the militia, right, and give us the safety that, that the Second Amendment is supposed to ensure. Okay. Well, you mentioned you mentioned the fear of the government taking taking over, disbanding uh, the militia or seizing firearms. And there's a couple of states that have passed laws. Ours happens to be called the Second Amendment Protection Act, and it was passed last year. A similar one is in Missouri, and it's certainly been challenged. It's it's been challenged in federal court. Uh, could you talk about that law just for a little bit? Yeah. So Your the, thoughts on it? Yeah, happy to. So the 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 law says essentially that uh, Wyoming law enforcement is not allowed to assist uh, the federal government in uh, in uh, carrying out the mandates of, of federal laws that would uh, unconstitutionally uh, infringe on gun ownership or on private gun ownership, the Second Amendment. Um, and our uh, our law, our SAPA, as it's sometimes called, says that. Um, well, it says that that's not allowed, and th- that's very sensible, right? All uh, law enforcement, all government officials, whether at the state or federal level, level um, swear to uphold the Constitution. And so as a part of their office, they have a responsibility to uphold the Second Amendment. It's not just the province of the federal government to protect the Second Amendment, and, and often it doesn't, as we know. But it's the, it's the province of every government uh, law enforcement official, whether at the federal or state level, whether part of the legislative, judicial, or executive branch to do that. Um, and so uh, the law really is making clear that if our law enforcement officials come across an obvious violation of the Second Amendment, gun confiscation, or what have you, they're not to enforce that. Um, and it's absolutely proper, I think. Don't you think that it's it's kind of a sad commentary on how we view the Constitution, that we have to pass laws to protect it, to protect our Second Amendment rights? I mean, don't you see that as kind of a... Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I might add, in that vein, um, what what... You know, what one notices often, especially an academic who goes to, you know, conferences, interacts with other academics and, um, uh, you know, and constitutional lawyers and, and looks at what courts are doing and what gun unfriendly jurisdictions are arguing in courts, they, many of them view the Constitution as an obstacle that's to be overcome by, by fancy lawyering, by obfuscation, and so on, rather than viewing it as a set of, of endangered principles that we need to protect. Um, endangered ex- exactly because so many view it as an obstacle. So it's, it's refreshing that, that Wyoming and Missouri and some other states have passed laws like this and, and similar laws that, that you know, intend to accomplish the same thing. Well, if it makes it all the way to the Supreme Court, I mean, there, I think that there's at least a good chance that they'll, that they'll overturn the lower court's ruling uh, simply because the Supreme Court has been pretty favorable to gun owners here recently. And if you could, I'd just like you to kind of run through some of the recent rulings um, that are favorable to to gun owners and just tell us how they might, how those rulings might affect us. Maybe start with Heller. Sure. So Heller's the the big modern one. In 2008, um, the Supreme Court said that Dick Anthony Heller, uh, who was a gentleman who lives in Washington, D.C., former security guard, um, could not be prevented by the district from having an operable uh, handgun in his home. Um, 
what's more, and, and we typically only hear about handgun in the home. Heller means handgun in the home, but the, the court actually went beyond that. It said addressing D.C.'s ban on having an assembled long gun in the home, and it said that that was also unconstitutional. It said that um, a long gun possessed in the home, or any firearm by implication, because now handguns could be possessed by individuals, um, uh, had to be operable and usable for self-defense. Um, and in the process, the court explicitly said that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to own a firearm, commonly used firearms, uh, for self-defense. Um, <coughs> and therefore, D.C.'s law, both of D.C.'s laws were unconstitutional. Uh, and the individual firearm ownership, importantly, was unconnected to any militia service, any kind of military service. Then uh, the day after Heller was decided or was handed down, uh, Alan Gura, the attorney for Mr. Heller, filed uh, a case uh, on behalf of Otis McDonald. And Mr. McDonald was challenging Chicago's ban on handgun possession. Uh, or, uh, yeah, Chicago's ban on, on handgun ownership. The, the question there was whether the Second Amendment applied only to the federal government or whether it applied to states as well, states and localities. And the court there did an analysis, the Supreme Court did an analysis of whether the Second Amendment was a fundamental right. Uh, and it decided correctly that it was a fundamental right. Therefore, it applied to the states and localities and that uh, Chicago's prohibition on handgun ownership was illegal and unconstitutional. We then didn't hear anything for a while, for a few years, um, until uh, that was a, that was a uh, 2010 decision. So then after Heller, uh, I'm sorry, after, so then after McDonald was a relatively little known case, um, it was, it was handed down rather quietly and then, and then disappeared rather quietly when Massachusetts um, decided to follow it and, and uh, just drop, drop the charges there. And it was uh, called Caetano versus Massachusetts. Uh, Ms. Caetano was a Massachusetts woman. Um, she uh, had been abused and threatened by uh, her estranged partner. Um, uh, so she decided to, and the partner had threatened, to, had threatened harm to her and so on. So she got herself a stun gun to protect herself. She actually used the stun gun um, when, when he tried to attack her and harm her, and, she, and, and her, her attacker left, not surprisingly. Um, and later on, in some other incident, the, she was, someone thought that she was shoplifting. We, who knows how it happened? But the police came, searched her bag, found the stun gun. Uh, Massachusetts had banned stun guns at the time and arrested her. Um, the, the prosecutor knew that she had used the stun gun to, to protect herself, um, from her former attacker. She had been made homeless in the process because she had nowhere to live because she left her abusive situation. The prosecutor prosecuted her. The trial court convicted her. Um, it went up through the Massachusetts judicial system and the Massachusetts high court, um, upheld the conviction. Um, and it did it on all kinds of grounds that Heller said were, were just flatly un unconstitutional. For example, it said that stun guns weren't around at the time of the founding and therefore stun guns weren't protected. And Heller explicitly said that the Second Amendment doesn't protect only firearms or only arms more broadly around at the, at the time of the founding. 
so the Supreme Court uh, uh, granted certiorari, vacated the case, and remanded in a maneuver that's called the GVR, where it was it felt it was so obvious uh, of so obviously unconstitutional, it didn't need to have oral arguments and briefing and uh, and so on. And uh, to the court's credit, all nine members of the court joined that GVR. Now there was a sympathetic plaintiff there, um, but but to its credit, they all, you know, uh, remanded there. Um, at that point, there was still some danger to Ms. Caetano, but Massachusetts, um, uh, in in again to its credit, in in a move that what one doesn't expect from that state, dropped the charges against her, uh, uh, formally declared her not guilty and closed the case. Um, and then we never heard anything about it. And we never heard anything about it. It kind of quietly quietly went away after, after the remand. Um, then, that was in 2016, and then last year we got the Bruin case, um, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, and that case challenged um, New York's May issue uh, uh, concealed carry licensing system. So. Um, in a state like Wyoming, if you're not a criminal, insane, et cetera, you take a safety class, you'll be issued a license to carry concealed. And as of a few years ago, in fact, you don't even need a license in Wyoming. Um, New York, you had to demonstrate some kind of special need, special danger to carry a, a, a firearm. Which, of course, they will never grant. Yeah, never, unless you're a, a retired police officer, or the spouse of a police officer. You know, a great example of the corruption that takes place there is how the rock band Aerosmith got its concealed carry licenses. During the day, they went to one police plaza in downtown Manhattan, did all the paperwork for the licenses. That evening, limousines picked up the issuing officers and took them to Madison Square Garden for the Aerosmith concert. I, I suspect the seats were also pretty good. Um, Unsurprisingly. Yeah, yeah. And so the Supreme Court said, looking at, at history, you know, and what the Second Amendment was about, said that you can't, um, you can't, it, it said something to the effect that we know of no other constitutional right that's subject to the discretion of a government official. That's not an exact quote, but, but very similar. Uh, it said that some kind of public carry by law-abiding citizens, you know, who take a safety class and all that, all that was fine, had to be allowed. It had to be either concealed or open. One of them had to be allowed. Um, that decision came after many, many years and many, many lower court decisions that just blatantly defied Heller, didn't apply Heller on its terms, um, essentially rubber-stamped every gun prohibition out there. And there were some exceptions, to much to those judges and those courts, the credit of those judges on those courts, but generally speaking, lower courts um, upheld any gun prohibition, and um, the Bruin Court um, put an end to that and said, here's the test. You don't have as much flexibility as you've been applying. Um, you have to look at the text, history, and tradition. What was the Second Amendment really fundamentally about? The things we spoke about. How did the founders and folks around the founding era and after that era view the, the permissible restrictions on various uh, activities implicated by the Second Amendment. Well, you mentioned something that the Massachusetts court said that, well, stun guns were never around at the founding. And we, we hear that argument from the left a lot. Well, the, the founders didn't have AR-15s and they didn't have 
you know, Browning high-power pistols, and they could have never imagined that we would have have the kind of armaments that we do today. Um, just real, real quickly, and I want to move on after this, but why is that argument kind of specious? Yeah, so two reasons. One is it's generally wrong. Um, so let's look at the AR-15, right? The common, the common bad guy gun, right? The bad gun of the day. The scary looking gun. The scary looking gun. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, if you if you look at, for example, the Gerandoni rifle that uh, could shoot, I believe, twenty one rounds uh, without reloading, and it can take an elk, that's far more powerful than an AR-15 is, right? Far. So more. first of all, it's just wrong. It, the, the argument is just is just false. Second, and looking especially at, at the tyranny control and the tyranny concerns of the founders, at the time, the federal government had the same arms that the, that the citizenry had, that the population had. Um, the federal government's armament now is more than it was at the founding, and so it's entirely sensible and reasonable and proper, I would say, for civilian armament to be more powerful as well. Um, because the purpose is to resist an overbearing federal government and state government since certainly always, but especially since the 14th Amendment. Well, not according to our president. If you listen to him, we'll need uh, jets with hellfire missiles and you know nuclear weapons to combat the government. Yeah, yeah. So if that were true, no revolution against a tyrant would ever have succeeded. Yep, good point. So let's move move on a little bit here. So you're starting a firearms research center, and I'm sure that most of my listeners haven't heard about that. So could you, why don't you just tell us what what the center is and what your what your goals with it are? So it's a, it's a center here at the University of Wyoming. It's housed in the College of Law, where I teach. And our goal is to be a, a kind of a focal point or, or a nexus where um, individuals uh, ranging from the media, other scholars, the interested public, your listeners, everyone really, can come and get uh, valid, accurate, nonpartisan information about all things related to firearms. And one of our goals, unlike some of the other academic centers out there, is not to focus only on law. Um, but we, we, find, we believe our constituencies to be anyone whose lives involved, are involved with, are touched by, um, uh, are important to firearms. Um, that means the person who wants to create a gun trust, for example, law enforcement, military, um, the Second Amendment and lawyers are included, right? They're not excluded. Hunting and conservation and so on. So everyone um, whose lives are impacted by firearms are included. Which and, in Wyoming, that's almost everybody. Yeah. So I was going to say, and there isn't a better place for that than in Wyoming, where the gun culture is strong, it's healthy, and involves pretty much everyone. All right. So next question is... The left seems to be in full control of higher education. I mean, everywhere you look, there's major universities that are very much against the Second Amendment, that are, in some cases, they're actively working against the Second Amendment. You know, law professors that um, are making ridiculous, ridiculous arguments that the Second Amendment only applies to uh, the military, or that we mentioned a couple of them. How specifically would your center go about combating those, first of all, the left controlling your narrative or what you're trying to do? I mean, how are you going to do that? 
And second, what would you like to see in the future as this center gets going? Yeah. So I, there are about, I can think of offhand, about four other centers or similar kinds of, of, of entities, you know, at universities. Of those, three of them are blatantly anti-Second Amendment. They're, they're not interested in, in academic, academic dialogue, right? They're not interested in, in dialogue and conversation to get to the truth. They're interested in pushing through a view. Um, the fourth one, um, you know, tries harder and does better to, to get different views included, um, but tends to have, and, and I've worked with them before, and they're, they're not bad guys, but, but uh, the folks who run it have a view and their funding comes from, you know, from one place. Um, our goal is to include all voices, like I said. Um, uh, uh, we plan to have a website that puts information up there, original sources, um, everything from original sources to briefs that have been filed in other cases, original statutes that, that are often, for example, cited in cases, um, uh, and allowing, you know, the public and the world to judge for themselves what, what you know, what, what the Second Amendment is truly about. Um, our center does not have a view. Um, uh, individuals who speak as part of the center will have a view. I have a view. Um, as as you've, I've expressed to you today, um, but the center doesn't have a view, um, and we certainly will not censor anyone who participates in our activities and has something to say. You know? I think that's that's extraordinarily important. You know, there's there's so many things in our culture now. Social media, Google, for instance. I mean, if you if you express a view that is even mildly pro Second Amendment, you're likely to get get tagged or your your message will be pushed down. My it happens to my program a lot. Um, but you know censorship is a big deal and so I think it's important that you're um, you're going to have an institute that's op- open to you know all points of view, you know, right wrong or indifferent. I mean the whole idea is to have a conversation to and to expose why those ideas are perhaps incorrect or you know historically fraudulent or whatever. Um, the last question I have for you, well, second to last, um, is that you know many citizens are increasingly disenchanted with our legislature. Um, I think that we could make a very good argument that this past legislature was more anti-Second Amendment than in perhaps the last 50 years. Um, there was a couple of really good um, pro-Second Amendment bills that, quite frankly, were butchered. My question is, in your view, what can what can the average citizen do to help protect their Second Amendment rights? I mean, is there anything that they can do on their own that doesn't require um, an elected official? So. Uh, I have a kind of a, a few ideas on this, and I'll, I'll throw them out there. Um, perhaps not not in any particularly logical order, but what what your question reminds me of is what an answer I gave when I was asked about my thoughts on what credit card companies are doing in um, tagging sales from gun stores as as firearm sales. I think Discover already um, uh, implemented that, um, and, and Visa. Uh, and MasterCard might be doing it, but but keep me honest on that point. But I know Discover uh, already implemented that. Um, so don't buy guns with Discover. Buy, in fact, buy them in cash, right? And make sure that, uh, you know, take some affirmative steps, steps to make it difficult for those who would infringe on your rights to do that. Make them work extra hard to do that, right? Um, second, I would say, you know, pay attention to the politicians, you know, the, the NRA, 
Um, and, and for all of all of all of its troubles, you know, the NRA has been a, a great force in protecting our gun rights for decades. And and like any other organization, it's not perfect, right? Um, they put out materials based on questionnaires that they send to politicians or. or Politicians or would-be politicians, those running for office, what their views are, and they're quite good. They're 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 generally quite accurate. Um, uh, you know, learn learn what your elected officials and potential elected officials are doing and saying, and what how you can expect them to vote, um, uh, and then go out and vote for for the the, the correct candidates, uh, and keep paying attention so that if they don't do the right thing. Um, you vote for someone else, right? right. Just, just to just to just to be kind of basic. Um, I would also say it's important to to stay informed, right? Stay informed about the topic, learn about the topic, and be able to speak intelligently about it when when you're approached in a conversation about it. Um, uh, you know, you might be in an airport or at a, uh, you know at a restaurant or something, and someone will make an incorrect statement to you, and if you can speak intelligently and tell them why they're wrong. That can go a long way, I think. And and uh, at the risk of tying that back to what the center is doing, one of our goals is to get lots of information out there to folks. So we would, you know, we should have a, a, a more robust website online in, in about six weeks, and then over the coming months and years, adding more and more info to that. Um, but you don't need our website to get that. There's a there are books out there. There's other information out there. You know, read that, become informed, and and share the, share the truth with with folks when it comes up in in conversation. So my last question, and since you've studied the Second Amendment, and obviously you know a lot of the history behind it, um, so where do you see, you know, in perhaps the next ten years, uh, where where do you see our country moving? With regard to the Second Amendment, do you, in your in your view, do you see that we'll be more more gun friendly, or do you foresee that there will be more more attempts to um, place restrictions on the Second Amendment? I mean, I'm, I guess I'm asking you to get out your crystal ball a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say I'm always reluctant to read the tea leaves um, to some extent. Um, uh, I will say I think uh, that the mainstream media will continue. To, to give a very slanted um, and, and frankly dishonest um, appraisal of the Second Amendment, what it's about, what gun culture is like, what, what gun owners are like, and so on. I think there's lots of money being poured into you know, the, those other centers that I mentioned. Um, and uh, there are some rich people who, who think very highly of themselves and, and you know, have a very elitist attitude toward those of us who own firearms. And they'll do what they can in, in what you might call a, an ongoing propaganda campaign, um, you know, to make, to make all of us, frankly, look bad and to, uh, to spread information or to favor information about the Second Amendment that's just incorrect. Um, that said, I think, you know, places like Wyoming show that uh, at a basic level, um, the Second Amendment and and its principles are alive and well, um, and uh, you know we can see from from the Bruin decision last year that despite all all of these tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions, but at least tens of millions that that uh, you know former politicians like Michael Bloomberg have poured into this just this campaign that very often goes over into the the realm of misinformation. Um, 
ultimately couldn't couldn't get a winning decision there. So I think we can, you know, we can have have some hope there, uh, or, or be happy that that's the case. Um, that said, there were three people in that decision, three justices who voted the other way, um, who, despite all of the evidence, didn't uh, vote to strike New York's law. Um, and so sometimes it's said that, you know, the Second Amendment, the future of the Second Amendment is just five justices away from, from disappearing. Um, so I think it's exceedingly important, um, uh, you know, to pay attention who we're voting for um, and who our politicians are appointing to, to, to the bench and so on. And really be engaged in the in the field. Well, Professor, once again, thank you for your time. I know you're a busy guy, um, but I really appreciate you spending a few minutes with me and talking about the Second Amendment. Um, I have a pretty active uh, audience, and they're the group of people that want to find out more information about, you know, whatever's on the program. So, um, if they want to learn more about your center or about what you do, how can they do that? Uh, so, I would recommend that folks get onto the center's mailing list. Uh, they can go to uh, firearmsresearchcenter.org or just frc.uwyo.edu for short, and that'll that'll take you to the to the to the website. And somewhere on there, there's a form where you can sign up to get um, the monthly updates that we send out. I think that's a good start. And you know, keep an eye on the center, watch what we're doing. We'll you know, as our website goes up and we get more and more info on there, there'll be more and more that you can learn there. And uh, of course, we always welcome support. Uh, at the center and, you know, spread the word about the center as well. Well, again, thank you for your time. time. Great. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be on your program. That'll do it for today's installment of the program. Have a good rest of your week, and we'll talk again tomorrow during the live broadcast, which begins at 10 a.m. You can find the link at CowboyStatePolitics.com or on the Cowboy State Politics Facebook page. But for now... From the base of the Bighorns, in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming, I'm David Iverson, and this is the one and only Cowboy State Politics.